0: Alright, relax You'll all have your turn I promise Just chill out Show some decorum I remember I did a music video For my high school band In a broadcasting class I had And the teacher, after the video was shown In front of the whole class I remember she said Show some decorum I wouldn't call that a good note And, of course, I had to look up what decorum meant in the dictionary. Uh, I got an A in that class, and I guess I learned something, too. And here you are, hoping to learn a thing or two. It's the Independent Minded Podcast. The little kid said my name, and it's true. I am an independent artist who interviews independent artists... And if you are one of those and you'd like to be featured on the podcast, or you have some feedback, or if you just want to say hello, shoot me an email, ron at baldfreak.com. Follow what's going on on the podcast on social at baldfreakmusic. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the internet is all the rage these days, I hear. And archived episodes of the podcast can be found at baldfreak.com. And if you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you're listening to it on iTunes or iHeartRadio. Thank you so much. We're approaching the 100-episode mark. I can see it just right over the horizon. It looks beautiful. And as I've said before on the podcast, I draw a lot of inspiration from the artists who come up here. And my guests for episode 77 are no exception. They're an American indie rock duo. They're married. Eric Krantz, Jen O'Connor, they are the parlor. The parlor, named after a room in the 19th century farmhouse where they live, farm, and create. Yes, they farm. And they do it all themselves. They play the instruments, produce, compose, create. And their self-described intent is to reflect some of the most powerful aspects of the human experience. And I'd say with this new album, they succeed. What new album, Ron? Well, I'm glad you asked. The band's new album, Kiku, is a little piece of dream pop beauty. It's lush, it's dense, it has a lot of cool electronic elements, and I fell in love with this album very quickly. That's before I read up on the band and the story behind the album, which involves a pretty heavy subject that comes up in the podcast, of course. The fact that Eric and Jen have endured a couple of miscarriages, and we talk about how the new album Kiku is a product of facing the grief involved in losing that life, and how making the new album helped them deal with the pain. We also talk about running their family farm, mysticism, meeting in an elevator, Technotronic, backup hip-hop vocals, and the David Lynch lady. More on that later. Let's kick it off with one of the very cool singles from the new album, Kiku. It's called In. Then my conversation with Eric and Jen, otherwise known as The Parlor, right here on the podcast. Independent Minded. Let's dig in. It's
1: Dalzo's amazing podcast,
0: Dalzo's. Plugging their projects, making them famous He's Helping them out just by making them talk About all the bullshit that they do from Altamont I'm curious to know what Altamont is where is it I know it's in the great state of New York I have the duo the parlor with me Jen O'Connor Eric Kranz how are you today
2: we're great
3: we're great yeah Altamont's uh, farm country New York just outside of Albany actually
0: I guess I've been to um, it's kind of a place that's kind of borders Mass. Great Barrington do you know where that is oh yeah, yeah. Is that anywhere close to Altamont? No. Nobody.
3: (laughs) I'd say probably an hour and a half drive, maybe an an hour drive. So
0: Albany's about I two hours north of here, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So not a bad. I mean, you did this just for the podcast down here. Well, we'll
3: we're going to get some dinner too. You know, when you're down in the city, you got to spend some time in the city.
0: I was introduced to the parlor through uh, a PR company that I deal with a lot. I've had a lot of cool bands thanks to this uh, company, Terrorbird Media. They are promoting your new album called Kiku. Yes. Did I pronounce that right? That's it. Yep. Uh, Your husband and wife. You got it. You live on a farm, a family farm Mm -hmm. in Altamont. We've established sort of where it is. (laughs) And uh, I did a lot of reading last night. I read about basically this farm is called the Kirk Estate. Mm -hmm. Jen, I read your blog. I want to talk about that. Uh, A lot of uh, inspiring stuff in there. We'll get to that. The band's name is The Parlor because you record in The Parlor at the Kirk Estate.
3: Right. You got it.
0: And before your band was called The Parlor... Is this a legitimate name? Did you release anything under the title "We Are Generic"?
2: We did. Yeah. Yeah.
3: There's music. That was out there. an
2: accidental name. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Whose <laughs> accident was that? <laughs> people just started calling us that.
2: Eric and I met in college, and we just right. started writing music together. We never really had a band name, and so people just started referring to us as Generic. Yeah. <laughs> and so then we then... took we
3: t- we owned it. We called ourselves We Are Generic.
2: Well, because the website was taken. <laughs> Generic with the website. It was like some pharmaceutical drug company. Drug oh, it company. would have just
0: been generic if it wasn't yeah. for the pharmaceutical company.
2: Right. So the-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is way back in, uh,
3: in the 90s, we're talking, right? <laughs> yes. Well, pretty close. We met in 1998. Yeah, I, I want
0: to hear more about this story. You met in an elevator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very romantic cliche, but you were in college in an elevator.
3: Right. This is entirely true. What college was this?
2: UMass Amherst. Oh, really?
0: Yeah. Oh, I played a show there once really? upon a time. In fact, I think I played a show there in 1998.
3: Oh, yeah. I think you opened for us. And I don't think
0: so. <laughs> I don't remember. We are generic. I was in, a, I was in an electronic slash industrial experimental band called Secret Army, and we played oh. the auditorium during a snowstorm, and it was one of the coolest shows I ever played. I felt like the crowd was totally oh. Back then, Like that sort of music wasn't necessarily well-received in the mainstream, but of course, college kids kind of had their ears to the ground about different sort of styles at that time. There were no laptops. You couldn't, you had to like set your Korg 01 WFD and press start. And then the other guy hit his sampler and you hoped you didn't go off time with each other and you just hope for the best cross your fingers. Anyway, I digress. Uh, We are generic turns into the parlor. Now you met at UMass Amherst. Yes, we did. And I read online. Is this true that there was a box of nerds? Right. So check this out.
3: So I knew that she lived on the floor above me right i'd seen her a couple times i think it's
2: a big dorm so he lived on the 17th floor and i lived on the 18th floor
3: i was peeping you know i was like oh i kind of like her like so you already had an inkling yeah and then we're on an elevator going up there's a, a full elevator and one by one people are getting off we get to like the 16th floor it's empty and then we get to the 17th floor, the door is open and I think she probably knows that I live on the 17th floor, yeah. Yeah. but then the door is closed. Cause I'm like, Oh, here's my opportunity. I'm going to say something, but I, I, then I froze. I didn't know what to say. So I started like reaching around and I had a box of nerds in my pocket <laughs> for whatever reason. The first thing that came out of my mind, I didn't even stop myself. I should have, I was like, Hey, do you like nerds?
2: But he didn't have the candy <laughs> at the time. He just asked me if I liked nerds. That was your, that was
0: your opening line? Yeah. yeah. And look at you now. Right? I know. Look at you all beca- well, first of all, I love nerds, so uh, that's one of my favorite candies. So that only makes the story more special to me. So <laughs> so you had an inkling, Eric, but what about you, Jen? Did you know Eric was, like, existed before yeah, above
2: you? I had seen him. So my room looked out into the lounge below, so I had seen him playing guitar down there. Oh, okay. And... I had always been into music, but you know, you're new at college. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who anybody is. And I knew that he played guitar, and I was like, I got to meet this guy because I want to write songs, and I don't know who I'm going to write songs with in college. Yeah. So, so
0: is it purely professional for you at the beginning, or yeah, you, yeah. yeah, well,
2: not just. Pr- I mean, we were we hit
3: it off as friends. It's, st- right. it's still yeah. purely professional. <laughs>
0: What I'm getting from the bio and from stuff I read online is that it was almost kind of accidental that it turned into what became a band mm-hmm. dynamic. So was there a moment or did you guys decide to play a show together or did somebody suggest let's start a band or we are a band?
3: We wrote songs as a duo for a long time and I don't think we really knew how to start a band yeah. for a while, but we were, we were in multiple bands. Like we were in a band together called Fierce Mullet which was an awesome band. Uh, that, that sounds
0: like you're making fun of me, but okay. But no, anyway, <laughs> no it, was,
3: it was a band that should have been famous. And then I was also in a band called Fire Engine Red, which was a yeah, really, was a really band. cool band. And that didn't, didn't go anywhere. And it was just like one by one, we just kept cycling through. And then Jen and I left for Thailand. We taught English in Thailand yeah, for a while. wow, okay. When we got back, we just dreamed up this thing. We were like, there's going to be a bunch of people that are go- we're going to meet that are going to like, be our tribe. And sure enough, like within a month of, of arriving in Albany, we met a group of, uh, musicians that called themselves Sergeant Dunbar and the hobo band. And they became our best friends and we joined their band. There was a nine piece band with like trombones and, and tuba, like trumpets, uh, singing saw acoustic guitar. And it was like a real, like, uh, Rolling Thunder review, you know, the Bob Dylan era which sure. yeah, it was like that. And we toured for, I don't know, four years around the country. And, and that was our first band. And we came out of that. And that's when we were like, oh, let's rechristen ourselves the parlor. And we formed a, a five piece band at that point. That has become whittled down to two again, <laughs> as we've learned how to how to use computers and, and samplers, et cetera. Ah,
0: uh, see, this, that's what happens. The technology takes over for our humanity. But mm-hmm. I'm sure there's motivation for that. There's probably economic motivation, and you know it's probably difficult to parlay everybody into the same room or on the same tour bus or whatever the case yeah. may be. So,
2: yeah.
0: I did write here. You had you were living abroad, so that's where you went. You went to Thailand mm-hmm. to teach English. Yep. Exactly. And that was a collective decision that you were going to do this together?
2: Yeah, we had graduated college. We wanted to we were both thinking of being teachers, but we knew that we didn't want to just get comfortable in life because we felt like we would never leave. Again, we would just get jobs and then that would be the end of
3: Yeah, that was our biggest existence. fear. Like yeah. we didn't we never thought like, "Oh, we're going to become traveling musicians, go hit the road and It was like, that wasn't, it just didn't seem possible. And all it felt like was like, all of a sudden we're going to wind up as like 60 year olds ready to retire. And it's going to be all downhill from here sort of feeling. (laughs) That's what drove us to Thailand. And I think going to Thailand and getting out of the country and like traveling a lot, like we went to Vietnam, we made our way down to New Zealand even. Wow. Nice. Yeah. We uh, went to Laos, like we had a lot of travels and it made us feel like, holy crap, we could be doing this. We could be playing music. We just need to find the people to play with and and we can make it happen. So that was a
0: great litmus test for you to see if you kind of had it in. Because some people realize when they, especially going that far away from "quote unquote" home, that nah, this isn't for me. I want to be in my hut. I want to be in my cave.
3: Yeah. I think the, the pinpointed moment was that time when we went to Bai. Bai is a uh, mountain, a mountain town. rice paddy town. Where it's like a bohemian travel destination uh, in the north of Thailand. And we went there, and there was a really cool tiki bar that had this awesome Thai reggae band playing this music that I can't even like begin to understand what was going on. And they took a break mid midway through the set. And I asked the singer if I could pick up the guitar. And he said, sure. And the place was packed. And I just started playing the guitar. And then they all joined me and Jen was there. And we just turned this thing into a giant sing along. That was when we were like, oh, yeah, why aren't we doing this? If we can do it here, we can do it anywhere.
0: Well, it sounds like a very interesting life leading up to that point. Why do you come back?
2: So this Kirk State that we live on has been in my family since 1904. Oh, wow. Yeah. So my grandmother had moved out. She was just, you know, she had Alzheimer's and she couldn't take care of the place anymore. So it was under my parents' care, but they were not sure what they were going to do with it. They were thinking of selling it. They really didn't want to sell it because it's been in the family forever. So maybe they would rent it out, but they needed someone to go in there and catalog a hundred years of history and stuff that's been collected So it was on offer to us. Hey, do you guys want to come back here and
3: like spend three months? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Really cheap rent and take care of this place for a while. And we thought that would just be a stopping point for us. We had plans to New York City, LA, somewhere. Africa we wanted to go to. (laughs) I don't know what we were just dreams. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But now, 11 years later, and we're still there. And now we own the place. So
0: Uh, according to the bio, the farmhouse is filled with quote unquote jars of feathers. Herbs, piles of broken guitars, trays of wings, claws, upright basses, a sampling synth, braided onions, polyester pants, Casio and Zenith, antique mirrors. I mean, they probably call that hoarding uh, in other circles, but it sounds very uh, romantic when it's on a farmhouse. How do I get a tour of this place? It sounds very Come quaint. on
2: up to Altamont.
0: All right. Well, now I know where it is. I can make my way up there. So it's been 11 years on the farm. Yeah. Who takes care of the farm? How does touring affect the the farm and vice versa.
3: Do you really yeah. want to ask this question? This one, <laughs> this one's going to go. This is exactly what happened when we got back from tour. Was this we had? This is an existential question you're asking. This I ask a lot of
0: existential questions. This is
3: not just an easy one to answer. <laughs> the farm takes care of itself only as far as as we bring it. And Jen does a lot of work getting it started in the spring. And I think this recent tour, we may have cut it a little close so when we got back we barely have enough time to get the thing up and running and then you know by July August we can potentially get out for a couple of weeks in a row and then and then again so no, from november to the end of march there's space in our schedule that we can be touring and then the rest of the time the farm runs us yeah
0: and you would i imagine feel the obligation to yeah, do right by you've... the farm as the farm has done right by you yeah right?
3: exactly
2: and it's definitely a labor of love and we put so much of ourselves into it, but it's also, it gives a lot back to us as well. We grow as much food for ourselves as we can eat year round. Nice. And then I, I grow lots of herbs and make soap and apothecary stuff. That's, I saw you made. Yeah, soap. Yeah, the jars of herbs I can't thing. believe you didn't bring me any. Uh, I can't believe I didn't bring you any either. What was I thinking?
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, See,
2: <laughs> I've got farm brain right now. So what's farm happening? Farm brain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the musical Simpatico came before... The wedding bells. It sounds yeah. like, right.
3: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, even before we'd ever had like a romantic sort of uh, interchange, we—unless yeah. uh, you count the nerds as a an romantic anything—it <laughs> <laughs> was probably within like two weeks of hanging out. We wrote a song together. We know how to interact in that way, almost elementally. Like we've been doing that since we met each other. Now, when we do when we do music, it's evolved a little bit. Like there's been periods of time where we would sit together and work on a song, almost like how I imagine Lennon and McCartney wrote songs together you know, where you're like one person brings an idea and then they both finalize something. We've done that before. Now it's it's increasingly more like I'll work alone for, for a period of time, come up with like an idea and come to Jen and be like, what do you think of this? And if she loves it, then I'll work a little bit more on it and bring it to her. And then she becomes like an editor, cutting and pasting until all the parts are in the right order, in the right spots. How to organize melodies over time is Jen's expertise. Whereas I feel like I, I just come up with melodies like they're... You have
2: nonstop ideas. they
3: throwaway yeah. melodies sometimes and Jen can figure out which ones have the value and where they belong in time.
0: Do you do your own creative projects like independently of each other considering, you know, you, you work on this farm together, you work on music together to consciously separate yourself from the other person? And do you think that's necessary?
2: Yeah. Eric, like I said, has just nonstop ideas and would probably prefer to be playing music 24 hours a day. Yeah, And I'm not that way. I need space to clear my brain out so that I can figure out how things go so I sort of remove myself sometimes and give him space to do that music on his own he has another project called bows and kill right now which has not released anything but you have probably a dozen songs that you've written specifically for that that project yeah. he's got so many ideas constantly coming and I need to clear my head to and you not don't, do Eric, that. You
3: don't need to clear your head. You that all like gets filtered out through music. I think it's like a Zen thing. I think for me, I, if I if I don't get to sit down with a guitar and and just. I don't know. a worst word just came to my head, but vomit melodies out. If I if I just if I don't get the opportunity to do that, I I'm, I'll be stressed out. Like other people need a drink or need to go for a run. It's, it's something like that, and you I, know. I qualify for both of those. those yeah, drinks. I was gonna
2: say you to have the drink too. I'll have the drink too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so Jen, as I mentioned, I read a few of the blogs on the kirkstate.wordpress.com. Mm-hmm. The most recent one really spoke to me in a lot of ways. I've never done a full tour in any of the bands that I've been in, but I've certainly played plenty of shows and felt those same sort of feelings that you describe in the blog. I mean, there's a lot of honesty to it. There's some humor in there. It's really well written. There's one thing in there you mentioned about a tour that really speaks to me as well. Because when I think about going on a tour at my age or even doing it 10 years ago, you think about, I have a day job. I make XX amount of dollars. I'm able to make music on my own. But getting in that car or getting in the van and playing Ames, Iowa on a Monday night to 15 people... Is it worth it when you describe all the things that could possibly go wrong? during a show, it would become a little bit daunting to a lot of people. And yet here you guys are doing it. You use the the phrase, I wrote it down, crippling self-doubt. Was that aptly described? (laughs) (laughs) I can't even do it justice. I would just recommend that anybody who's listening to this right now, like when the podcast is over, check this blog out. It's thekirkestate.wordpress.com. I mean, it's not just about the parlor. Mm -hmm. Your latest entry is just really about the touring experience. Yeah. I was just really impressed by what was written in that. I just want to. Thank you. I had the opportunity to tell you that. So what are the hardships of touring beyond what's already mentioned there? I mean, do you guys share the responsibilities of booking the tours and driving and stuff like that? It sounds like from what I read, it is a collective experience for both of you. Yeah,
3: We do the planning. Each of us drives for varying amounts of time. We bring a whole bunch of like seeds and nuts and like a big bag of food (laughs) with us just in case, you know, Uh, sometimes we don't even eat it all. Once we're on the road, we feel like we're a little gypsy family, which is awesome. And actually, Jen didn't even get to really bring up a lot of the mystical side of touring. This was like a, I'm going to tell you how it feels to uh, experience tour and the doubt that comes with it. And then the like the in-between moments where you're struggling to just keep yourself up and like... Excited, etc. But mm-hmm. there was also this like overriding like spiritual element that was going on on this tour that started when we hit Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was a great town. If people haven't been to Pittsburgh recently, go. It's it's. Oh, I'm headed there next it's month. A very right. cool I, I town. Want some
0: notes. Tell me where to go because I have no idea.
3: Yeah. Well, we played at a place called Spirit. Spirit had its like built-in audience. There were people there just to drink on a Friday night and a lot of people came out for the show too, but it's like, as soon as we started to really vibe, our music was starting to pick up pace. The whole bar really came to listen and people were willing to to drop you know money on our albums and on our t-shirts and which is an awesome way to start tour. I mean, it was like, bang, we have this like really big, super enthusiastic audience. And this woman in the band before us came up to us after we played and said, Hey, you guys sound like what I wish that David Lynch had put like I wish you were the music that was a soundtrack for the new Twin Peaks. You guys would have been the right soundtrack. And I was like, oh that's like That's a high compliment. That's a a super high compliment. I was like, wow I didn't awesome. Cool. But she set us off on something. She opened up like just like a David Lynch movie. She like opened up a little like crease in the space time continuum (laughs) that we went into and then it got weird. Every show from there on out got weirder and weirder,
2: and it was awesome.
0: What about documenting this? Is there a way to? Do- Is it yeah, just we, a, it's a feeling? We or it's-
3: we're we're actually <laughs> working on a uh, a screenplay right now. All
0: right, I thought that this was my idea, but-
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I couldn't believe! Like we played with this awesome like jazz psych fusion band in Chicago called Kevin and Hell. Some of the most talented. Uh, musicians i've ever been around i swear they were doing acid or something because they (laughs) they were unbelievably like oh it was and the place was perfect for for an acid trip because it was it was lit with with black lights and all sorts of goodies
0: you've done some cool opening performances i see here artists that would be familiar to you know people listen to this podcast including the lumineers and fanagram i'm a big fan of that band as well when you do these opening gigs Do you find the worth in that when you're playing to somebody else's audience as opposed to probably playing a union pool where it's sold out and it's a smaller venue and you're probably feeling more of the energy from the crowd? Do you feel like it's a necessary evil to do those shows? Yeah,
2: I think each one of them has its own benefits to it. You know that if you're opening for a band that everyone is going to see them, that you don't really expect people to be that receptive to you, but then ultimately people are and it's your expectations are kind of lower, but then you end up getting rewarded. Because... You might The
0: David Lynch lady might show right, up. Right, exactly. It, all it takes is one David Lynch lady right. to make your day, I would imagine. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. There's
3: always a David Lynch lady at a, at a rock and roll show that, you just That's a quote from this podcast You just have to know Where to look for them Or let them appear for you right. And she's probably pretty creepy If she's a
0: David Lynch lady In a good way in, a, in an encouraging way apparently This is a very uh, personal album And I hope we can get into it I mean we're talking about A sensitive subject here That's referred to openly In the press mm-hmm. material So if you're cool with talking yep. about it I'd love to talk about it Definitely As a couple you've endured A couple of miscarriages mm-hmm. Trying to start a family And I want to read a little quote quote here where it says we stumbled upon the tiny hand of the soul we lost. And we brought a piece of our of Kiku back with us. When you go through this experience as a couple, is it just, you know, automatically like we have to go make a record now? Like how did it work for you?
2: Because Eric and I have been together for so long and, and have written music together for so long. We use music always to express what's going on in our lives, no matter what it is. I was totally checked out. I was trying to process what was happening Um, but was having a hard time with it. And like Eric was saying before, he uses music in a Zen way to try and clear his mind and and calm his mind. And he just started coming up with these melodies and they ended up being the most comforting thing for me. It was like lullabies that he was just creating and was one of the most soothing things of that whole experience.
3: Yeah, the album before Kiku, we made a record. It came out of the first real... um, Miscarriage. So we've we've had uh, about five years of struggles. And the first miscarriage, we didn't really know what happened. The second miscarriage was was really, really devastating. And at the time, we were working on music that we wanted to be the exact opposite of the grieving we were feeling. So we, we made a record that was our attempt at making like a pop album. So, wazoo Wazoo. Yeah. Wazoo Wazoo. I
0: listened to that album last night and it's definitely a different yeah, it's style. very
1: dancey. Right. And yeah,
0: more of elements of disco and right. jazz, a lot of horns in it. Yeah. I, I thought it was really cool, but certainly different kind of style. Yeah. Right.
3: We just wanted to vibe on something that would pull us out of the feeling we were having. Yeah. It's like we did an about face. We turned around and walked away from the grief. Right. And
2: my mom had been really sick during the album uh, making of Wazoo Wazoo as well and almost died and eventually came back to life. And it was sort of like we wanted to do the same thing. It's like we have faced grief, but now, you know, life is here. And so let's try and be positive and write all these dance songs and kind of, ignore all of the bad stuff that had happened
3: but the last song on the record yeah. was called wishes in the sheets it's about that second miscarriage we were actually playing a show they, they used to have a festival every year I'm not sure that they still do it they anymore might, I think they might. called sure. farm aid which is a really cool like show that you know Dave Matthews played at yeah, uh, Willie, yeah. Willie Nelson yeah Neil Young Neil Young played at it it was the last show that Pete Seeger ever played we didn't even get to stay to see Pete Seeger because Jen was having her miscarriage right after our set ended
0: oh my gosh.
2: yeah so so music is so intertwined right. with this whole experience right. for us.
3: And so we wrote this song, Wishes in the Sheets, about that feeling like we're struggling and we wanted to talk about it. And we even tried to talk about the grief in like releasing Wazoo Wazoo, but we couldn't really bring ourselves to do it. It's I, such I, a I,
2: taboo topic. Yeah. You know, it's of course, yeah. it's so stigmatized in our society to talk about miscarriage and As a woman, you're not supposed to announce that you're pregnant until, you know, the first trimester is over. But the reason for that is because miscarriage is so common. And so it happens to so many people and then you haven't announced that you're pregnant. And so now you're you've lost this pregnancy and now you're you're suffering alone instead of people knowing about it and then being able to support you through it. To me, it's all backwards. It took a really long time for me to become comfortable talking about it. And it's still uncomfortable. You know, it's like, I'm here talking about this personal scary thing that no one wants to talk about, but I'm doing it because I know there's other women out there who've experienced it and I don't want them to feel alone because that's how so many people feel. So
3: when we announced the first song soon and um, Jen openly stated to her, you know, Instagram followers and, you know, the blog, et cetera about the experiences that she's had with miscarriage that we've had, a lot of women immediately reached out to her. People that we are, you know, family members, friends, people we've never met before who said, you know, I never told anybody. The only person that knows about this experience that I've had is my husband or my mother or something along those lines, you know, and it's like very heavy, very heavy stuff. And people were very appreciative and people continue to be very appreciative and, and reach out to Jen with private messages like that it also opens up this weird world where people don't know what how to say something anymore around you they're a little bit scared that maybe they're going to they're going to step on you know the, there's eggshells all around yeah, you at all course, times yeah of course that's understandable yeah. i mean even
0: right. talking to you about it in an interview form yeah. i mean i wanted to make sure that you know Someone suggested to me maybe to talk to you about it off the air before we start. But reading all the press materials, I would think that you're all in mm-hmm. on, on talking about yeah. it. You know? Yeah,
2: we wouldn't have put it out there into the world if we weren't comfortable with does, it. Does,
0: even in a small way, does that feedback from people, even strangers, like, offer you any comfort, Jen? Oh, my
2: God, so much comfort. You know, like, the thing that you had mentioned before from my blog post about the crippling self-doubt, it's like, you know, even coming into this interview, it's like, oh, I'm going to have to relive this. I have to, every time that, and I know that, and I'm intentionally putting myself in in that position, but every time that I do put myself out there and I hear back from other women how much it means to them, there's crippling self-doubt, but then there is that confidence that I get from other people, that I am doing the right thing by talking about it.
0: Now, the title, Kiku, it's Japanese for chrysanthemum, it says in press materials that that flower started blooming in the garden of your farmhouse right after the miscarriage. Yeah. And it became a symbol of your grief, despair, resilience, and faith there was another mention here about how nature taught you about infertility and how mm-hmm. like desert turns into green and all that stuff. Yeah. So this is all hippie dippy stuff and <laughs> I, I'm all about it. I, I'm a person who believes in signs and I'm a very existential person. But then there's the other like more practical part of me that thinks, is this my mind making up, mm-hmm. like finding something that's not there? Yeah. Uh, you know, my house was destroyed by a hurricane in 2012 and that's where my record label was and that's where my music was and that's where my life was. I saw that as a sign. Well, maybe I shouldn't make right. music anymore because mother nature came and, and flooded the shit out of it and yep. it's all gone now and you don't really start over when you're my age and you're a musician but steadfastly against that thought and it took me a while I decided you know what maybe I'm supposed to make music in a different way so I started going to studios and I traveled to Europe and I traveled to Nashville
3: I think at least Jen and I always live this way and it sounds like you're you're you have the same mentality but it's like, if you're looking for meaning in everything that's happened or that it continues to happen, every moment is providing some possible meaning yeah. and you can spin it whatever way you want. But if you're looking for it, you're going to find something cool and it's something worth moving forward on. And so even though that hurricane came in and maybe your first thought is it's telling me you got to stop. Yeah. But then your second thought is, no, it told me something different. And now what it's telling me is don't keep doing the same thing I was doing before go try something new but it still brought meaning to and like so that's how we roll and like the making of kiku was was exactly that it was like everything almost dealt itself to us we just had to be open to it and so like the song super bloom was written while we were on tour last spring and we were we were driving through california and the flowers were everywhere they had just gotten like 5 inches of rain in, in the desert and these seeds that had been Buried in the in the sand for like a hundred years, were blooming, and it felt exactly like it was telling us to just relax. Whatever is supposed to be blooming in your life. Will bloom. There's times when you're going to not have what you want to be blooming. Blooming, it's I don't know.
2: It's It's like it doesn't mean that everything's going to be okay, but you can find beauty in what's here,
0: right? When you have a shared experience like that, like driving through the desert, do you find that you're wired the same way? Is that was nature speaking to both of you in the same way at the same time that somebody? point to something and say hey that means that or is it kind of something that's kind of unspoken between the two this is
3: funny i think we have we were very suggestive in that way like if jen is feeling something and she's like i'm vibing this thing i always just vibe it with her i think since day one we've always just vibed it with each other yeah and so if she's feeling that meaning and starts describing it i'm right there by her side feeling it too i never i never question it and i don't think she ever questions me you're
2: right
0: so the fire's lit, and really the match was a box of nerds. I mean, really, or, or the conversation about a box of nerds. That's, I mean, it seems like how kind of like slight that story is compared to the life that you guys have led up to this point, all these shared experiences, being in a band together, experiencing these hardships together, experiencing the good times together. That's why I said it is pretty inspirational, so... I said you better be inspiring before the the podcast started, and so far you're living up to the billing. I appreciate right. that. Yes. Let's get to the technical side of things. It's already kind of come out a little bit that Eric vomits uh, music <laughs> nonstop. Uh, as far as the songwriting goes, what about lyrics? We yeah.
3: work on those together. Those someone will throw some ideas down, and then there are times where we've written songs that are we write these exact like this is me writing a journal about my life. This one, I think we intended to write a very straightforward journalistic record. Like this is a journal of our lives. This is the diary of what we're going through. And it ultimately ended up being a series of moods that were the moods that we were feeling throughout our relationship. So in that time while we're grieving, we weren't just grieving. Like this is a thing that I think anybody who's been through a very uh, difficult experience, you don't Stop living your life. The weird thing about grief is that you try to keep living. Yeah, you and, can't stop. Yeah. yeah, and you try to keep doing the things normally. And,
2: and grief lasts. A lifetime, you know, it doesn't ever go away. And so there's other feelings combined with the grief.
3: Right. But it takes on this like weird, like a uh, new, like color or something or new thread in your life where this is just now there as well. Like you're doing your normal thing. You can almost feel everything normally, but there's this like crooked thing going on in your life where something's a little bit off. And so that's why we decided like, let's try bringing synthesizers in to sort of be that musical version of that crookedness. Like we, up to that point, Jen and I were mostly uh, acoustic instrumentation. And so this is like our twist into using more and more uh, synthesizers. There's a dark synth bass sound that's throughout this record that Jen uses live now that it felt like we were adding that darkness that we were feeling in our lives.
0: Before the nerds, before the elevator, you know, Jen, you said you saw this guy down in the lobby area of college playing the guitar and you said, I got to write songs with this guy. Mm-hmm. How did it all get started for you as far as music? We mentioned other bands before. Were you doing Mm -hmm. other bands as well before you met?
2: Yeah, uh, not so much in college. In college, I came from much more of a technical background than Eric. Yeah, I was singing since third grade. My parents made me take piano lessons. Oh, my parents made me take them as well. Yeah, I hated it. But now I'm very grateful that they forced me to go every Sunday. Yeah, and then just singing all throughout high school and then in bands in high school where I was in a hip-hop band and I was like the backup vocalist and... I was you in did another... backup
0: hip-hop vocals? Yeah, yeah. What is like, that like? What it's kind of
2: like the female loop part. of It was the 90s. You, okay. you remember biggie that? Biggie, biggie, yeah, kind of like that. All
0: right, yeah, I was going to give me an example, but that's that's a perfect example. Thank you, yeah. I Appreciate yeah. that. And it's uncanny. You sound just like the recording. <laughs> Eric, you are the, I'm going to say, you're probably the technical mastermind of this band. Do you play more than just guitar, I would imagine? Yeah, yeah. And what I, else do you play?
3: There's multiple records where I, I do the drums on them, but now I, I've been using MIDI sampling for drums lately. Um, and I try to make my my samples as long as possible so that most people wouldn't even know that there's samples, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. Um well, don't give up your secret. <laughs> right. I think my instrument of choice is the bass guitar. Yeah. In rock and roll, the bass and the drums are everything. If you got a good bass and drum sound at the bottom, you've got the, a good start for you something awesome. you get that foundation going on. Right, right, right. Yeah, I love the bass guitar. It's like my favorite thing in the world. We just played with a band from Portland, Oregon called Ila Bamba. And they have a bass player, this young female named Grace, who is... Killer.
2: Uh, She's so good.
3: She is the best.
2: The whole band is incredible.
3: Yeah. Their yeah. band is incredible. This bass player is lights out. All right. I'll check them out. Check them out. And, and I told her afterwards, I said, you have this thing in you. It's like it some people, when they play the bass, they have like the snake inside of them that, that they can't <laughs> tame. <laughs>
0: When did you pick up a guitar for the first time? Who were your influences growing up?
3: I have six brothers and sisters. There's seven of us. We were raised in a very Catholic family. We only listened to Christian music growing up. So, you know, Amy Grant was something that we were allowed to listen to in my house. And when I say allowed to, it's like we weren't allowed to really listen to much pop music. Um, It would trickle in from my older brothers and sisters. I was the second youngest out of seven. When I started to like make my way out into the world at like 12 11, 12 years old, I started to find, you know, uh, cool music. And-
2: technotronic.
3: Oh yeah. That was my first the- pump up the jam. Wow. Pump up the jam. Jamie
0: Grant and Technotronic.
3: Yeah. That's my, that's my start. Actually. So when in college, when I, that's well, a first, okay. I, I had heard so little in terms of classic rock. I actually, there was no good classic rock station around where I grew up. I'm from Sturbridge, Massachusetts. I was listening to a really good alternative rock music in the 90s. So like Radiohead was my favorite of all, right? And like Beck was awesome. And a lot of that stuff, like the Pixies, Jane's Addiction. And when I got to college, I had never heard a full Beatles album yet. I had never heard a full Zeppelin record or Rolling Stones record, like all the classics. One of my roommates, he lived down the hall from me at the time. He would set up a session every Sunday where it's, we're going to watch... Eric, hear this record oh, for the first for time. That
0: yeah. must have been
2: awesome. It was great. Yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. And
2: then you're seeing Eric experience it for the first time, and then you feel like you're listening to it for the first time. Yeah, again. I'm sure.
0: Like the first time you listen to Dark Side of the Moon yeah. or something. Oh it my God. Exploded, yeah. You know? yeah. We
3: had to play that one right back again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's amazing that, like, you were kind of intentionally guarded from it by your parents, then because of geography, really. And the times, you know, where now everything's like, you just want to hear anything, you just go online and you can listen to it. Mm -hmm. But back then, like, if it wasn't on the radio or your parents didn't have the album or the CD, which obviously your parents didn't, considering your upbringing, you would turn away from all that stuff.
3: Right. And, And I think one of the neat things, at least for me, and this is just something, a story I tell myself, but by not having heard all that rock and roll when I was... 16 and I first got my first guitar and I was learning like Nirvana songs and trying to learn how to play the music that I was feeling in myself, I felt like it was so fresh, like hearing the Beatles for the first time. It was so fresh that I feel like I was sort of given like a gift that a lot of people don't have where, where they experience it at such a young age that it's sort of, they're not actually feeling what rock and roll really felt like when it came out in the 60s. You know, if you were playing music and and it wasn't like, The gnarly rock and roll, like the doors, you know, and like the stuff that really freaked people out in the mid sixties, but you were like, you're hearing that for the first time. I guarantee all those people are the people that made music into the seventies, you know, that just rocked out. I feel like I got that opportunity in a way that most people I know didn't get.
0: Yeah. I could totally see that. I mean, for me, I mean, I love the Beatles. I love Led Zeppelin. I love Billy Joel, but there's a nostalgic attachment to those bands because I remember my dad playing that stuff in my basement when I was five you know, running around with my stuffed animal in my pajama pants to Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass and Zanzibar by Billy Joel. Like I have those shared experiences with my parents who I'm really close with as well. So when I think of those bands, that attachment to my family kinda comes into play. Whereas you had none of that, I could see how it would certainly influence your makeup in a different way. So all right. Again, Technotronic, Amy Grant <laughs> I didn't see any Technotronic in the bio other influences, but
3: I recently we were recently at a show where where somebody was playing records right out of their bin right and and it was like the DJ either before or after the set or maybe it was both but there was a TechnoTronic record in there and I put it on it was like an original. 1991 technotronic i put on pump up the jam and i swear it cleared the entire place out
2: <laughs> i think the guy was like what is this i don't i've never heard this before
3: yeah there's a
0: time and a place and there's not many times <laughs> TechnoTronic. i mean it was a huge hit at the time don't get me wrong no offense technotronic uh, let's talk about the business a little bit a couple of things that i took an interest in uh, just from reading up on you guys is you're on a label called five kill records right now, is this your label? Or are you part of the running of that label?
3: Yeah. Jen has her hands off on this one, <laughs> Okay, but only because it's it's scary uh, and, it and, is. and we have a lot of other things going on. But yeah. yeah, this was something we found after the release of Wazoo Wazoo. We wanted to see if maybe by being a part of a record label, we might be able to get a little bit more traction with our next record. We've sent out some feelers to record labels. We got some pitches back from people for contract terms and almost signed On with a couple of different places and ultimately decided that we weren't going to sign our record rights over. And at that moment, we also gleaned enough information from the other people we had spoken to that we knew that we could do the last couple steps ourselves. And so then I reached out to Uh, There's a number of different really cool people from the Albany area, Albany, Troy, Schenectady, that all have their hands in various business elements of music. We have a really cool alternative radio station from Manchester, Vermont, which is called EQX, and we have two DJs that are part of the EQX radio station that are part of our uh, our 5Kill Records team. Then we have people that are part of promotion companies that are part of our 5Kill team. And then people that do mixing and mastering, recording, that kind of stuff. So we've put together something that's got about, I think it's 12 people nice. in total. And yeah, we all put our own money up and we're all funding something like over the course of two years, we're going to put out 16 to 20 records of upstate New York music. If we're feeling good about it, if there's making enough of a trickle of money to keep it going... We will keep it going beyond that. We we hope that it is something that ultimately becomes a cornerstone indie record label.
0: What makes you decide to pick up a PR company? Certainly the DIY spirit and the amount of time and energy you have to actually do all the due diligence to get press and to book a tour. I know from my own experiences, you have to kind of give up a little bit of that power and that control and put your art in somebody else's hands. And that can be very daunting Mm -hmm. and very difficult because you don't want people to mishandle it.
3: Right. Well, the TeraBird people are so professional and so heartfelt. We've only had good experiences with the TeraBird folks. You know, one of the things about doing business is that you, you realize at some point that you have a lot to learn and there are people that offer services that have learned what you would potentially have to learn, right? They're experts in whatever it is. So Terrorbird has experts in publicity. They know a lot of the people to reach out to. So for instance, they know you and they know that that you might be interested in, in this album and they can send you the email and they've collected only music that they w- approve of as well. So they're like gatekeepers in a way. So if you see the Terrorbird name on something, you know that it's going to be of a certain class sure. of, of music so there's those elements that go for it that's it's worth it's worth putting the money in and we weren't sure at the time the first when we did wazoo wazoo we weren't sure if it was going to be worth its investment and then we made our money back and it was obvious that that's actually an element to putting a record out it costs more up front and it's always scary to put the money up front to do it but i think in the end it's definitely worth it
0: the good news for you guys is that your overhead for recording is probably a lot less than most bands because you're doing it all on your own property right right, yeah. right. So you can probably be more open to cherry picking the companies that you need to kind of invest a little money in to promote your art. Mm-hmm. So so good on you for that. One other thing I wanted to mention regarding the album is, and tell me if this is just a coincidence, is there a lot of one-word titles. They're all one-word titles.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
0: most of them are even one syllable. Is this uh, another intentional little thing that you guys it was put together? Oh, yeah, all right. yeah. Um, you okay. got it.
2: You're I'm unraveling on top of the it. Mysteries.
0: So what, what was your motivation for that?
2: We, in the past, have typically had song titles that are very long, full run on sentences like (laughs) brother and sister in the kitchen sitting on the counter trying to fly like eagles, I think is one of our songs. That was one of the song titles? Yeah. Oh boy. But this record was so raw and so emotional that we didn't want to hide behind so many words. So we tried to strip it all back and have it just be one word song titles to make it feel really naked and really vulnerable because that's how we were feeling when we made the record.
0: One thing that... Comes to mind as you're telling me this, and you know, again, I agree. Considering the the subject matter of the album and the intimacy involved in, in the songwriting processes, is there a place that fans can go check out the lyrics to this record?
2: Yeah, There's lyrics are printed on our Bandcamp page um, under each song. So parlorbandcampcom All right, I'm gonna have yeah, to do that now and find the lyrics
0: because I know from my own experience as well. Like as a lyricist or or a singer. Sometimes, especially with people not having the attention span that they used to, that stuff kind of gets lost in the shuffle and kind of glossed over when it's probably... Not probably, like one of the most important aspects of the recording. Yeah. I love Bandcamp, by the way. You guys fans of, great. of that huge, platform?
3: Huge fans of Bandcamp. They really do care about the musicians.
0: Right. That's the best thing I can say about them is mm-hmm. they really, like it is the most musician friendly platform out there. Yeah.
3: I think it's also becoming one of the most music friendly platforms out there too. If you're looking for music.
0: Yeah. Bandcamp they, Weekly's got me into bands like yeah. Bar Headrest that I had never even
3: like oh, yeah. heard of up until that point. Darcy so. Headrest is awesome.
0: All right, see so what kindred spirits. Good stuff. Give me some advice, you know, younger artists starting out nowadays. What do you do? How do you start? How do you try to persevere through an industry right now that is really more about art than about commerce, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, it's not easy.
3: I got a piece of advice that I think still is the best piece of advice in regards to this question. Is this I, from the Quilt Lady? Because no, that's what I was
2: going to say. But
3: the Quilt Lady one's <laughs> good too. A quilt Lady. Oh yeah, there's a Quilt Lady. No, this one actually comes from, remember uh, Stephen Kellogg? Yeah. There, so there's a guy named Stephen Kellogg who's a musician. You can look him up. Um, he used to live in Northampton when, we, when I was at UMass Amherst. And I saw him play live. And I was working on a documentary at the time for a film class. And I interviewed him. I'm like, I don't know, 20 years old. And I interviewed Stephen Kellogg. And I asked him that question that you just, what, what would you give for advice? And he said, the music industry is a roller coaster. Don't get too up when it's going up and don't get too down when it's going down. If you can make it a flat line in your heart, in your mind, no matter if it's up or down, it's just flat. That's the best way to handle it. So don't get too
0: excited about the highs of it and don't get too discouraged by the lows. Right. All right. I want to go on a cyclone right now, but but, all right, I agree with him. And I think it is very difficult to make it in today's industry. I thought it was difficult when I was trying to make it in that way. But I have bands come up here in their early 20s who just seem undaunted and that becomes inspirational to me yeah. too so
3: and so the quilt lady said to us
2: yeah we met her at the brimfield antique store when we were like 19 and years why, old why is she the brimfield quilt lady? Fair. she was selling quilts fair enough that yeah. makes sense and she told us stay together and don't want too much so that's the best advice we've ever
0: had. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to ask you guys what's next. I feel like I should end the podcast on the quote ladies quote.
3: But <laughs> We have some shows set up for uh, late July, early August, and then we're going to get back out again in October, November when the farm is done. And <laughs> the farm is going to
0: dictate <laughs> what happens next. And
3: yeah. then, yeah, and then definitely again next April, March, like February, March, April is, is a sweet spot for us. And it's fun to go down to the south, southwest at that time. So yeah. we're going to do that.
0: All right. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing it right. I'm, I'm very impressed with the music and more than anything, I'm impressed with the creative spirit behind the parlor. Jen O'Connor, Eric Kranz, check them out. The new album is Kiku. Thanks for coming in today and I hope you enjoy your uh, your New York City experience before you head back up and start making soap again.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much, right. Thank you, bald freak.
3: All right. No
1: problem. <laughs>
0: From The Parlor, earlier in the podcast, we heard In. Both off the new album Kiku, available now on 5Kill Records. Pick it up wherever you buy music. Remember buying music and at theparlor.bandcamp.com. Find out more about the band at theparlormusic.com. And on all the socials, you know them. Facebook. Snapchat. I want to thank Eric and Jen for stopping in for the inspirational conversation. Tara Lopez at Terror Bird Media for hooking us up. And let's not forget Texas' favorite son, my man, Elvis Duran. Summertime means time to strap on your dildo.